Well, welcome to our second to the last class, Lucky 13 class. Eric, do you want to open in a word of prayer for us? Certainly. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you bestowed on us. <clears throat> the blessing of salvation, the blessing of life, the blessing of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Lord, we would ask for um, <clears throat> Judy Heal, uh, Barb. We'd ask that you would uh, uh, enlighten the uh, doctors as to the best course of treatment. Of course, we know that, uh, that all life comes from you and all healing comes from you. We'd ask that you would, you would heal her, Lord, and you would give her comfort as she uh, deals with this issue. Lord, we ask for... Um, <clears throat> You to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts as we uh, listen to uh, our instruction today, that we would um, uh, learn from it, be able to um, uh, pass it on and, and to uh, <clears throat> encourage and educate our, our brothers and sisters in the faith with what we learned here, Lord. Lord, we pray that you would uh, um, speak through uh, <clears throat> Dr. Mondragon tonight and that... Uh, uh, you would give him uh, wisdom and enlightenment. Lord, we also would think of uh, this Thanksgiving holiday that uh, we pray that uh, the people of this nation would would uh, realize the, their need to thank you, Lord, for all you've done for this nation and for everyone in this world, Lord. And we also pray for those that will be traveling that uh, you would have safe travels. Lord, we ask all this in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, today we will continue looking at the last portions of hermeneutics. Last time I gave you a quick overview of the history of hermeneutics. Purpose of that is so that we can avoid the problems that the church worked itself through in time, at least some segments of the church, and also learn from their experience what uh, good hermeneutics is all about. And we have today a set of principles that have been tested over that period of time, and we have the benefit of learning from that. So I gave you an overview. We also took a real quick look at some of the major other approaches to hermeneutics. The first two we mentioned were pretty common amongst us. It's very common even within Bible teaching churches because it's our tendency to not take the passages literally. So we tend to do the alternative, which is an allegorical interpretation. So we want to avoid that and seek the author's intended meaning. Uh, we also looked at liberal theology and liberal hermeneutics that produces liberal theology, and we want to avoid it as well. The Bible claims to be the word of God, claims to record supernatural events beyond the natural realm events that we would describe as miraculous, 
And at the heart of the liberal approach is a denial of anything that you cannot explain rationally. So their idea is reason takes precedence over revelation, whereas we trust in revelation. So that's in contrast to our grammatical, historical, contextual approach that uh, takes the scriptures as they present themselves, seeking the author's intended meaning. Last time we also began a study on what we would describe as special hermeneutics. And special hermeneutics primarily but not entirely deals with particular issues and particularly issues of literary genre, literary form. The Bible is full of different kinds or types or genres of literature. In fact, we have some of the best literature that has ever been penned. Under inspiration, God has chosen to use a variety of means of communicating, and we call those different areas, genre or literary form. I just gave you a brief introduction to narrative material. So we looked a little bit at narrative, and we'll just pick up from there and continue looking at narrative material. I'll give you a brief review, and then we'll get right into it, and then we'll look at uh, poetic literature and wisdom literature, and that'll take most of our time. We might go beyond that, but we'll see how how fast we can move today. So when we talk about narrative literature, narrative literature, I stressed, stressed the importance of it last time. It's the foundation for all of Scripture. We could look at the whole Bible as a narrative. And within that broader idea of narrative, there are portions smaller that are also narrative. So you have stories within stories. So we have a broad narrative with it, and within it we have different, different individual stories. But the, the genre of narrative is the biblical, is the foundation for all of the other genres that we find in scripture. It's also the most common genre of all of scripture, over 40% of the Bible. Actually about 46, including both Old Testament and New Testament. So almost half the Bible utilizes the genre of, liter- of narrative literature. So we could describe it as a meta-narrative. It gives a broad, big story, his story, or God's story of his dealings with his universe and the creatures that he's created and his plan. And he has a plan that is revealed by the scriptures. And that's the area that we concluded last time, that broader, bigger picture of all of scripture as one large narrative. 
So moving on, the essence of narrative, it's presentation of history or events in story form. That's broad, a broad definition. Uh, biblical narrative, because we stress the historical aspect. I mentioned that there's other kinds of narrative as well, but when we're talking about scripture, we're talking about history. And you might even include historical narrative in the description. It gives the reader, this is one of the major characteristics, the reader the essence or the sense of being there. So what you want to do in reading narrative material is imagine yourself like a fly on a wall, watching the events unfold that are described, watching the characters as they develop, listen to the characters as they speak. So it gives the reader the sense of being there, so it appeals to our experience, and the more that we can kind of put ourselves into the story, I think the easier it'll be to understand what the original author is trying to communicate but it will also enable us to learn principles by way of experience. So that's the essence of it. And we described it as historical narrative, stressing that historical aspect. All history and all historical narrative is selective, and so also is the biblical narrative. It is selective, and we trust because of inspiration that What we have in the text is what God intended. We might desire more. For example, in the early chapters of Genesis, there's a lot that we have wonderment about. We don't have all the details, but we can always trust that what we do have in the text is what God desires us to know. Deuteronomy tells us the secret things belong to God. Deuteronomy 29.29 but he has revealed the things that he wants us to know. We also know that uh, the Bible gives us an interpretation. That's the, the essence of history, is it's interpretive. And when we come to biblical history, we're talking about an inspired version of history, and that meta-narrative I would describe as world history, and it includes a history from eternity past all the way in terms of the future as well. So we would say from eternity to eternity. So we have a more comprehensive, more complete history than you'll find in any world history text. And we also have God's viewpoint or God's selection and interpretation of that historical narrative. It's God's view of history, bottom line, because of inspiration. So the occurrence, well, you would expect that there are many, many books, and in fact, we do find that we have many books, some examples, clear examples that are almost entirely Historical, the book of Genesis, book of Exodus, almost all of Numbers. You might see some uh, legal material in there as well, but it's within the framework of, of the historical account. We also have books like Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. They are predominantly historical, if not entirely 
Ruth is a unique story. We'll talk a little bit about it as well. But it is also considered historical narrative. You might notice I don't have Leviticus or Numbers on that top line there. Because Leviticus, even though it has a few statements in there, a few verses that are historical in terms of narrative, but it is predominantly legal material, predominantly law. So also Deuteronomy has some narrative, but it would fall under the same category as Leviticus. It would be primarily a legal document. It's a covenant, essentially. So we have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, following the Pentateuch. We'd also have uh, the period of the kingdom, Samuel and Kings, and also Chronicles, three historical books from different perspectives in terms of Chronicles and Kings, recording almost the same, in some cases the same historical events, same kings, same time frames, but from a different perspective, but both historical narrative. Then after the exile, we have Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther would be the historical books in that. So those are your primary Old Testament historical books, some of them entirely historical, some of them with major portions. And you also find some narrative material in other books as well, but they're not predominantly narrative. The New Testament, we have the four Gospels, and they are almost a genre in themselves, but they would fall under the broader category of narrative, and more specifically historical narrative. And we have one other book, the book of Acts, which would very definitely be historical narrative. So those are your major books of, of Scripture, and as you can see from Genesis all the way through the middle of the first century, or the first part of the first century, actually the middle, just past the, the middle of the first century, we have, we have a record. And even though I don't include prophetic books, it does give us a, a look into the future, but it's a prophetic look, not a, strictly speaking, historical look. Now, there are different kinds of narrative. You could subdivide the broader category of narrative into short reports, for example. Is that Andrea? Yes. I've been trying for 20 minutes. Sorry. That's what we thought. Did uh, Barb help you? Was she able to help you? Um, yes. She, yes, she did. Yeah, okay, yeah, I don't know what the problem is, but anyway, it's good that you're here. I'm still, I just got into where we left off last time, I gave a little review. Okay. And uh, you can pick that up fairly easily by just going to the website, and if you just look up one slide, occurrences, that's basically all I just covered since you logged on there. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Now I'm talking about the kinds of narrative. These would be within that broader historical narrative category. Some of what we have in the Bible are simply reports of 
certain incidents, sometimes a like a battle report within a larger portion of narrative. A report is usually brief, oftentimes self-contained, and most of the time it's described in the third person, dealing with just a description of either a single event or a series of events that are all very closely related or a particular situation that occurs in the past. So we would describe that as a as a report. It could include, like I said, a battle. It could include maybe something dealing with a construction like the tabernacle or the temple. It can include just any kind of a historical story that uh, fits within the, a broader, usually a broader narrative. There's also what some literary scholars call an epic. This would be a longer narrative. This would have a series of events or a series of episodes, you might say, where Several things may take place over a longer period of time. You might consider all of the wilderness wanderings, even though you have mixed in there. You have law, you have other things, the Sinai uh, incident. But you could look at the entire wilderness wanderings at the end of the book of Exodus as uh, an epic within the broader story or the, the broader narrative of the book of Exodus. Similarly, with the story of Joseph, you could classify the latter part of the book of Genesis as fitting into this category of epic, where you have a longer narrative. You might have, more specifically, a heroic narrative, where you have an individual that is prominent, and his actions save people, or overcome an obstacle of some sort, and it would be described as heroic narrative. And these are just a series of stories or episodes or smaller narratives that describe the life of the hero and primarily emphasizing that heroic work that he accomplishes. The life of Moses, you could consider as a heroic narrative, bringing the children of Israel from bondage, out of bondage, through the wilderness wanderings, to the point of almost bringing them to the point of becoming a nation. So that would be an example as well. More narrow, within the book of Judges, the judge Deborah, along with Barak, in Judges 4 through 5, you could consider that as an epic. It's a little bit shorter, but it's still long enough that you could, and it would still have the characteristics of this, her- this heroic aspect. Story of Samson as well in Judges. You could even include Joseph again. Or even the other uh, patriarchs as well in the book of Genesis. Those would be heroic narrative. A prophetic story, Elijah, Elisha, would be examples of these where you have the career and the ministry of 
primarily prophets, prophet story. Very common in other literature and also present in biblical literature is comedy. Now, what we mean by that is is not a late night show, but comedy in the sense that the plot has a happy ending. And that's the idea of literary comedy. Not that there are humorous incidents in it, but more that it has the ending that is very positive and, in fact, a happy ending. And there are many stories that that uh, tell us or are framed in this comedic way. The story of Esther, the whole book, you could consider as a comedy in that there's a tragic situation, but the end of the story is that children of Israel are saved. Joseph, again, you could include Joseph as comedy. Uh, The whole Bible is comedic in this sense, in that uh, God is the one that has ultimate and final victory. So within that, you often have a situation that someone has to overcome and solve, and everything ends well. And you can probably figure the counterpart to comedy, right? A kind of literature that is somewhat the opposite. Tragedy, right? So we have tragedy. This is just a kind or a category of literature where the story doesn't end well. In fact, the story ends tragically even in some cases or things go bad. And there are several of them. The the story of Saul, for example, King Saul, ends in tragedy. Solomon would be another example. Within the broader narrative of the life of Christ, if you simply trace uh, the story of Judas, that would be tragedy as well. Even though you don't have one complete narrative there, but you have a thread that ends not well. Most of the kings, a lot of the, most of the kings of the north in the nation of Israel after the division after Solomon, all of them are tragic. They, they're all evil kings and some of the kings of the south as well. So tragedy, very common in uh, both the Old and New Testament. Romance. Uh, I mentioned the book of Ruth. That would be an example of a love story, basically, the story of Ruth. That's more of a narrative that details um, somewhat of a love story, even though it's not between a man and a woman, but yet the love between Ruth and her mother and eventually finding a husband through the whole thing. So the chronology leading up to to David is portrayed to us through a romance, you might say. You might also find a polemic. That's a kind of narrative where you have some of the battles, some of the wars are like a polemic in that you have an exchange, sometimes ideas or sometimes literally of, of war. You have an attack and then you have... Uh, Uh, the battle itself, and then the resolution of it. 
So Elijah and the 450 prophets in 1 Kings 18 would be more polemic in that he basically is determining and demonstrating that those 400 prophets are false prophets. And last on the list, there's other less important. These are the most important ones in Scripture. You could even classify the Gospels themselves as having within the broader narrative of of Scripture or historical narrative, the Gospels are a kind in itself, a somewhat of a unique literary genre within the broader narrative genre. So those are different kinds, and if you can identify these, sometimes it might be helpful, because each of these has some of their own characteristics as well. What are the main elements that make up narrative, and you probably can come up with these. One of them, which is very important, in order to have a story, you need kind of a setting for that story. And an author will lay out some of those details, and we trust in Scripture we have all that we need to kind of set the stage, if you will, to allow the characters to act out their parts on that stage or live out their lives in that setting. So that's why we have in the beginning of a narrative, we have things like time, we have location, we have characters introduced. All of those descriptions are part of the setting that the author sets so that he can eventually begin to develop the next major element are the characters. And enough details of the characters are given, particularly in scripture, that we understand in some cases their frailties, sometimes their strengths, sometimes other characteristics about them, in order that we may follow the events that follow. So you have setting, and you have characters, and then you have a plot. That's the story itself. But you need the setting and the characters in order to accomplish the action that takes place. So we have the the plot that is an arrangement of the events. They're interrelated in such a way that a story is told, and sometimes so that it can be remembered. It's memorable. And stories stick with us, and they teach lessons as well. So these are not random events, but they are events that are arranged in an order in order to accomplish a certain purpose that the author has in terms of describing uh, the story. So depending on what is going on, there would be different elements in that plot. Some of the things that we described when we talked about kinds, for example, in a heroic narrative, the the story is probably around one major character and the events that bring that, that heroic event 
to the forefront and how either an issue is resolved or a problem is is overcome, a battle is won, or whatever the case may be. An example would be David and Goliath. Uh, that would be a, another his, a heroic narrative where David defeats the large giant, probably one of the best-known stories in all of the Bible. So, in order to accomplish the goal of the author in setting forth a setting and characters and plot, an author will use many different literary devices. And when we were talking earlier about literary devices, you might review There are many of them. In fact, we spent almost a whole session talking about literary devices, so you can review them. But in terms of narrative-specific, the most important literary devices include a scene, the scene. And sometimes the scene, uh, you'll have a series of them. If it's very short, you might have just simply one, but... In general, if it's a longer story, you'll have a series of scenes where things change, things move forward in developing a plot. So the scene is one of the most important features of narrative. And oftentimes you might have a change of characters, or you might have more than one character. And... Behind the scene, when we're talking about scripture, by the way, and by the way, the broader plot of the meta-narrative and the main character of the overall narrative, the main character is God himself, and the plot is what God is accomplishing in the universe, and we find out that uh, in some ways there's tragedy mixed in, the fall of man, but then God is going to resolve that. So we have heroic elements in the broader meta-narrative as well. So God is oftentimes, in even shorter narratives, behind the scenes and sometimes the major character even. So we have that supernatural element in terms of all aspects of narrative. Another important literary device is sometimes we have dialogue, in other words, conversation between characters. And again, sometimes conversation, particularly in the book of Genesis, between God and man. But after Genesis, usually conversations with within the story between human characters and Dialogue, oftentimes in the scriptures, carries the larger part of the narrative. So, very, very important. We see that in the Gospels as well. Jesus ministering and speaking with disciples. So We see his ministry to them, and the story unfolds, oftentimes uh, utilizing dialogue. And we talked a lot about those rhetorical devices, lots of them. Very, very important as well. Remember, we talked about comparison and contrast. Sometimes you have that within a narrative. You have repetition. Repetition, words, phrases, actions, themes, ideas, etc. Refer to those literary devices that we talked about before. 
for a whole list of rhetorical devices. It's important in a narrative to think about the point of view that is being presented. Sometimes you'll have a story from the point of view of God himself, or sometimes you'll have a story framed from the point of view of the major character, or there might be a, a different point of view as well. But this is important in narrative literature. Not so common, but it does occur what literary scholars describe as a test motif. And what we mean by that is there's oftentimes a situation that, or an obstacle or a difficulty within the story. And if you have a test motif, oftentimes you have the resolution of whatever that test is. An example would be Abraham and the the story where God calls upon him to sacrifice his son. The whole thing is a test. In fact, there are several in the life of Abraham. God presents Abraham with many, many tests, many, many situations. Some of them he fails. The situation with Hagar, if you remember, and the son through Hagar, that was a test. God made some promises, and it was taking too long here, and situation is such as, well, maybe God has a different means. Uh, how do I handle this? The example of Hagar is a test that failed. But then he also picks up, recovers, and the ultimate test is the sacrifice of the son, and he passes that one with flying colors. So you have that idea behind the the narrative, or the narrative is framed around this kind of a motif. It can be a a test of physical strength, like David and Goliath. Uh, It can be a spiritual test. It can be a mental test, a psychological test, a moral or a spiritual test, something behind the story that moves the narrative along. Sometimes in a test motif, you might also have what literary scholars describe as a transformation, the transformation principle, where there's a change or a pivot in the story. And obviously, for example, the story of David and Goliath, the change in the story is when David cuts the head of the giant off, cuts the head off of the giant, better way of putting it, Uh, Now there's victory, and then the story progresses on the basis of that transformation or that victory. Sometimes a transformation is not positive, it's negative. We call that a tragic transformation. It can even be catastrophic. The story of Adam and Eve, you have a transformation, and it's, it's the most tragic story of all of Scripture where mankind falls into sin. But that's a transformation, albeit negative. But you can also have a positive transformation as well. A change from a misfortune or a difficult situation to victory or happiness or relief. The story of Ruth, the story of Esther, the story of Abraham. That, that also would uh, be a transformative 
or the transformation principle would be involved in it. You also have foils in literature, and obviously in the Bible you have foils as well. A foil is something that heightens what is the most important element of the story, and it's a contrast. So you have, and what's most common are the characters. You might have one that is a foil and one is the hero, you might say. Or you might even have events that are placed against one another in contrast. An example of some of the characters that we have, we have Cain and Abel. So Cain is the foil. You have uh, Lot and Abraham in the book of Genesis. You have Jacob and Esau also in the book of Genesis. Even within the marriage of Jacob, you have Leah and Rachel, Leah being the, the foil. There's conflict between them. Saul and David, you have an extended narrative in, um, what is it, First and Second Samuel, particularly First Samuel. Mary and Martha in one little incident in the Gospels. So those are examples of characters where one is a foil. Events. You have uh, in Genesis 18 and 19, you have the event where you have angels appearing and Abraham is hospitable to them, brings them in. He's unaware that they're, they're angels. And... Uh, we have promises that are made, and and then we have the situation of Sodom and Gomorrah. But it's a it's a story where you have a negative placed against some positives, and that's an example of foils. So those are the main literary devices. There's others, obviously, that we can find in Scripture. Those are the most important ones. And since the Gospels are so important in the New Testament, let me make a few comments concerning the Gospels themselves. As I've said, it's somewhat of a subset of the broader category of historical narrative. And Gospels have their own characteristics that are unique to them. And some of them is the uh, obviously the subject matter and the fact that they are surrounded around Jesus Christ. So that makes them not only unique in all of literature, but also unique in terms of uh, any other gospel that you might find. And, and by the way, there are other gospels that are uh, a record of history but we only have the four that are the inspired versions. Uh, their primary form, obviously, is narrative. It's a story, but it's more, it, it, it's not strictly a biography either. It's very selective in that it is a story that is framed around the Lord Jesus Christ that emphasizes him, him and his character and his nature 
So all of the characters contribute to that story. The disciples are main characters in that narrative. And how Jesus interacts to them reveals something of who he is. So in one sense, it's a narrative. And in another sense, it's a biography, kind of a combination of the two. But it's not, strictly speaking, by a biography, even though it has some of the characteristics of a biography. And as I mentioned, the focus and the unifying element of it is Jesus Christ himself. You could view them as portraits of Jesus Christ, highlighting the the particular features of who he is, and each of the Gospels stresses a different aspect, and you're probably familiar that Matthew is written to a particular audience to stress to that audience that aspect that would appeal most to that aspect. Matthew, written to a Jewish audience, they were looking for the Messiah that is predicted and prophesied in the Old Testament. He would be a king that would reign in a kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. So Matthew brings out all of those elements of Jesus as king that came to deliver the nation of Israel and, in fact, establish a kingdom. So the kingdom is a major element in that and the aspect of Jesus as king and or Messiah is a major element. So you have a lot of quotes from the Old Testament, allusions to the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is in fact this messianic person. So that's the main focus of uh, Matthew. Mark, written to a Roman mindset that was interested in what could a man do. They were builders. We still have some of the structures that, were built in the first century by the Roman Empire. So they were more interested in in what this personage by the name of Jesus Jesus Christ, what, what could he do? So we have the aspect of Jesus' servant. Luke, the focus is the humanity of Christ. The Greeks, probably written to a more Greek-oriented audience, portraying Jesus as the ideal man. So the humanity of Christ is stressed, his emotions are stressed, his relationships are stressed. Jesus Christ as man. Gospel of John is different from the other three. The other three are called synoptics because they're similar. John is very, very different. He's more broad and deals with some of the events that are not recorded in the other gospels. Some of them are, but less frequent than you find in the three others. And it's to a broader audience, to the world. World, that word is used commonly in the Gospel of John and presenting Jesus as God himself. So you don't have a genealogy like you do in Matthew or Luke, but if you can think of it as a genealogy, you go all the way to eternity past. In the beginning, is where John takes us in terms of where Christ comes from. So the focus is Jesus Christ. 
And you might say that it is a hybrid nature, the, the Gospels, because it contains so many different other genres. Not only narrative, not only aspects of biography, but you even have uh, aspects of fiction, you might say, in the parables. I hesitate to use that word, but parables are stories within a story. Now, the biblical peril, parables could could happen, but they're they're not a record of events, but they're illustrations of situations that are sto- told in story form. Uh, you have sermons, you have dialogue, you have proverbs, you have poetry, you have lots of figurative language in some cases, you have irony, you have questions, so it's combination of many, many, not only literary form, but a variety of uh, literary devices. You have tragedy, you have comedy, you have uh, all kinds of other elements as well. Lots of elements in gospel. And the main purpose, as I've already kind of indicated, is to portray Jesus Christ in Three different, from three, three different perspectives. Matthew, Jesus as king. Mark, Jesus as servant. Luke, Jesus as ideal man. John, Jesus as God. So each gospel stresses a different aspect of Jesus himself. So those are gospels. Any questions on narrative material? That give you a better feel for how to approach narrative? I'm assuming uh, the answer is yes. I have a question. Okay. Um, So there's not really any special rules like some of the hermeneutical textbooks talk about for the different genres when it comes to narrative. Is that correct? Well, you you could come up with a set of what you describe as rules or principles. But the main thing is to recognize these particular characteristics and as you interpret, take those into account. But if you want some principles, you could say something like uh, um, you might want to analyze the setting and see how the setting contributes to the story. And that kind of forces you to give attention to the setting. Because if you don't get the setting right, then you're going to probably miss some aspects of the story. Uh, you want to get some characters. You have lots of characters, so pay attention to the characters as fully as possible. Right, but there's nothing where you would change or no do something different from the general. No, point. no, no. In fact, if let me remind you, and maybe I should have said this at the very beginning, we still maintain from Genesis one one to Revelation twenty two twenty one a consistent grammatical, historical, contextual hermeneutic. And we utilize from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22 all of those same principles. When we come to narrative, now we 
we we utilize those same principles, but now in addition, we want to give particular attention to some of these characteristics of narrative. So, recognizing that you have a story and you want to also look at it from the perspective of putting yourself into the story and trying to imagine yourself. That, that's a, that's an exegetical tool that you want to utilize. That's in addition to, let's say, epistolary literature. You, you, you can't put yourself, there's no story to put yourself into. So you have a kind of an additional consideration here because it's going to give us the experiences of others and it's a story. And from that perspective of viewing that story, that's helpful in understanding what the author's trying to communicate in that story. Okay. That's what I thought, and that, but that's helpful. Yeah. So you want to analyze, you know, you might even summarize the, the major events as you read through the story. That might be helpful to you. But you want to give attention to the characters and how they're developed and that sort of thing. In terms of application, there might not be a lot of commands that kind of like you would find in Ephesians or something or James. But uh, you would apply it by, okay, here's an example to avoid. Or here's an example to emulate. Those are kind of the two main applicational areas that you want to investigate in narrative. All right. Good question, though. Let's take a look at the next major area of special hermeneutics. We'll call that poetry. And poetry is very, very different from narrative. In fact, it's very different from just about every other literary form, and it has its unique characteristics, and we want to take a look at what those are. And when we talk about poetry, we are talking about a particular kind of poetry. We're talking about not poetry in general, even though some of the things we'll mention also apply to poetry in general. But there are some unique features of Hebrew poetry that we want to make sure that we are aware of. So when we talk about poetry, we're talking about Hebrew poetry. And when I say Hebrew poetry, I mean poetry that you find in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. Because the poetry of the New Testament is still Hebrew poetry. In fact, much of the poetry of the New Testament are quotations out of the Hebrew scriptures, out of the Old Testament. But all of the writers of the New Testament were, were Jewish people. So when they write unique poetry in the, in the New Testament, it is, it follows the same characteristics as Hebrew poetry. So we're not talking about English poetry that has its characteristics, some of them similar, but, um, there's one particular that we need to call attention to and we'll talk about it first. But we're talking about Hebrew poetry. Leland Riken says, poets are especially artists who paint pictures with words. Now, that statement applies to nearly all poetry, 
and it also applies more specifically to Hebrew poetry. Their quotation by Sidlow Baxter, he says, we ought clearly to understand also that the term poetical refers only to their form. And he's going to make a distinction here. It must not be thought to imply that they are simply the product of human imagination, which is true of other poetry. So that's the distinction he's making here. It must not be thought to imply that they are simply the product of human imagination. There is glorious poetry here, but there is nothing of the merely fanciful or unreal, which sometimes is common in other literature outside the Bible. So those are good distinctions to keep in mind. In fact, one feature of Hebrew poetry, it's a reflection of real things that real people experienced. We'll talk some more about that. Last part of Baxter's quote, these books portray real human experiences and grapple with profound problems and express the big realities. So they're not fanciful, they're not imaginative, and you need to make that distinction because that distinguishes Hebrew poetry and biblical poetry from some other forms of poetry outside of the Bible. Not that all poetry is imaginary or fanciful, but some is. So we want to make clear that what we're dealing with is real human experiences and, in some cases, profound problems. So I like that quote. In terms of the occurrence, or where do you find poetry, the first thing we want to mention is... Poetry is the second most frequent literary form in all of the Bible. So it's very, very common. And you know what is the first, right? Historical narrative. So it's not as frequent, but it is frequent. There's not much left of the Bible after historical narrative, because that's 46%, but a very high percentage of scripture is framed using uh, the genre of poetic. We have five particular poetic books in the Old Testament, and you're familiar with them. Job, uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, five prophetic books. Only seven Old Testament books contain no poetry. So you can see that even outside of the five poetic books, there are some, there are very few that don't have any at all. Leviticus probably doesn't have any. uh, Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, no poetry. And according to Kaiser and Silva, Haggai and Malachi don't have any poetry as well. In the New Testament, well, there's other passages as well. Uh, Lamentations, for example, that has lots of poetry. Some narrative books have long sections of poetic material. And most prophetic books are framed in, in Poetic genre. New Testament. 
It includes certainly the Old Testament quotes out of either poetic books. There's a lot of quotes in the book of, from the book of Psalms, for example. Jesus commonly quoted the book of Psalms. In fact, Paul in Romans 3, most of those quotes describing the depravity of mankind come from the Psalms. And they're poetic. So we have lots of quotes from the Old Testament. But we also have, uh, quotes, Paul quotes from sources outside of the Bible. Quotes from ancient poets. Acts 17, I think you can find one. Uh, but there's lots of examples of Hebrew poetry. Um, in even books like the book of Romans, the last part of Romans 11 is a quote, I think, out of is it Isaiah, I believe, but it's poetic. Romans 11.33, even Ephesians, that's an epistolary book. Ephesians 5.14, that, remember, we saw that in one of the assignments. That was a poetic passage. So, uh, the New Testament contains poetry as well, and that is predominantly Hebrew poetry. So what's the purpose of poetic literature? The main purpose, it appeals, it appeals to the emotions, and as all poetry does, so also does Hebrew poetry. So it communicates ideas, but the appeal is to our kind of emotions, our, our senses, if you will. So it's very persuasive, and it can even be exhorting by appealing to the emotions. It can reprove us. It calls for a response, like any other portion of Scripture. It's a particular and special use of language that is affective in nature. So that's kind of the purpose of Hebrew poetry. Now, very, very important are these characteristics. What is the major, by far, the major characteristic of Hebrew poetry? Anyone know? In fact, this distinguishes from most other poetry. We're not immediately familiar with it because we have obviously our own English or European poetry, but uh, somebody started to respond and I cut you off. Go ahead. They use a lot of parallelism. That is the major characteristic by far. We're used to rhyme. Don't look for rhyme in Hebrew poetry. In fact, the Holy Spirit, knowing that through time people would speak different languages, it would be extremely difficult, if not impossible, if rhyme, to, to understand the poetry or to get the full impact of the poetry if rhyme were the main characteristic. So, not rhyme, but parallelism. In fact, rhyme, if it exists at all, is very, very secondary. So, let's spend 
a considerable amount of time looking at parallelism and what we mean by parallelism. We could define it as parallelism is the corresponding of one line of poetry with another. Very simple definition, but this is the characteristic of Hebrew poetry that is most important to observe. So you'll have one line of poetry followed by a second line and sometimes a third and a fourth. But all of those lines correspond to one another in some way. Now, there are very clear ways of classifying some of these correspondences of one line to another. The most common is what is described as synonymous parallelism. It is the most frequent and the most prominent, and I would say probably the easiest to identify. So it's very, very common. So what we mean by synonymous parallelism is... Well, let me give you another description of it. I jumped ahead here. Another writer says the corresponding of one verse with another I call parallelism, kind of a simple definition, very similar to the one I mentioned. Uh, Berlin calls it parallelism focuses the message on itself, but its vision is binocular like human vision. It superimposes two slightly different views of the same object and from their convergence, it produces a sense of depth. And synonymous parallelism does this, but so do some of the other kinds as well. E.J. Young says, while parallelism appears also in other languages, Egyptian, Akkadian, Rashamra, Syriac, nowhere does its Peculiar grace and strength appear so clearly as when it serves to express the divinely inspired words of the Old Testament. So that's parallelism. Now, synonymous parallelism, you have a very close similarity between each of the two or more corresponding lines. You might even say you have the same thought sometimes using different words. So we could simplify that. A close similarity, and oftentimes comparison is used, close similarity between however many lines that you may have. Here's a few examples. I'll give you time to jot those down. In fact, you can find many on your own once you understand the characteristics of synonymous, this close similarity where you have one line and the next line is very similar. Oftentimes, just a few words are changed. I'm going to show you on the screen here. I'll come back and you can copy the rest of them. But Psalm 49, 1 and 2 This is synonymous parallelism, and you'll be able to see. First line, 
hear this all peoples. Kind of a call to listen, if you will. Hear this all peoples. Second line is parallel. It is similar, so it's synonymous. Give ear. See the difference there? Same idea. Same idea as hear this, but instead, different words. Give ear. Instead of all peoples, you have the same idea, but it's similar. All inhabitants of the world. So all peoples, all inhabitants of the world, synonymous parallelism. Even the third line in the next verse, both low and high. Now, it doesn't specify specifics, but you assume, hear this and give ear, both low and high. So it just kind of parallels the last part there in terms of how do I hear? How do I listen? How do I give ear? And then you have another parallel with the first line of verse 2, rich and poor together. Now, verse 2, those two lines are more closely parallel, but they're still parallel with the first two of verse 1. Does that make sense? And you have something similar. Let me go back to uh, 3.1, Psalm 3.1. Line 1, I don't have it on a slide, but I'll read it to you. O Lord... How my adversaries have increased. There's line one. Line two. Many are rising up against me. Same idea. Phrased differently. But what it does is it's emphasizing the content of the lines. uh, Kind of doubling, doubling the impact of what is being said. Psalm 37, two. Line one, for they will wither quickly like the grass. Now line two, he adds to it, and fade like the green herb. Doesn't say anything different. Same idea. This is Hebrew poetry. One line similar to the next line. Synonymous parallelism. Even verse 10 in that same psalm, yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. That's line one. And you will look carefully for his place and he will not be there. Now he's talking about the wicked man. He doesn't repeat that, but he refers to him as you. But the whole, the broader idea is the same idea. Again, verse 12, the wicked plots against the righteous. And then line two, and gnashes at him with his teeth. Same idea. That's synonymous parallelism. And you also find it in Psalm 7, Psalm 7, 16, Psalm 136, 1 and following, Psalm 24, 1, Psalm 19, 2. Very common in all of the Psalms. One more, Psalm 716. His mischief will return upon his own head. And then line two, and by the way, I give you this one because this one might help you in interpreting a word that might not be familiar in line two. 
And sometimes if you look at these two lines, it'll help you to <clears throat> interpret maybe a phrase that is not familiar. And we have this, let me read line one again. His mischief will return upon his own head. And then line two, and his violence will descend upon his own pate. What's a pate? Well, I'd have to look it up. But it has the idea relating to the head, the crown, or the top. Uh, so it helps knowing line one says his mischief will return upon his own head. And because it's parallel, pate has to do some, has something to do with head or something on top or a crown or something above, above the body there. So sometimes if you are observing the synonymous parallelism, one line might help you to understand the next line. And there's other examples as well. The counterpart to synonymous parallelism is what is described as antithetical. And as the name indicates, it's somewhat the opposite of synonymous, where you have a contrast. So you have a contrast of lines. And this also is common in the Psalms. Psalm 1-6, Psalm 30, verse 5. Just a few examples here. Psalm 37-9. Those are all antithetical. The book of Proverbs, however, is full of antithetical parallelism, where one line is contrasted with the other. Almost all of chapter 10 of Proverbs, and certainly chapter 15, verse 1, be able to get all those. In fact, again, these are very easy to identify. In fact, while you're copying there, let me give you one out of the psalm. Psalm 1-6. Line 1, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And if it's antithetical, you probably don't even need to be looking at the verse. You're going to know that the second line is going to have to do with what? If the Lord, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, what might you expect in line two of Psalm 1-6? Something to do with the unrighteous, or in this case it's described as wicked. So line one, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way, line two, the way of the wicked will perish. That's antithetical. Another one that I don't have on the screen, I'll show you one in, the, in a moment. Line one, the, this is Proverbs 11.3. The integrity of the upright will guide them. So you would almost expect uh, something to go on with the non-upright. And line two says, but the crookedness of the treacherous will destroy them. That's antithetical parallelism. Look at uh, Proverbs 10, 1 and 2. A wise son makes a father glad. If it's antithetical, what do you expect in line two? Well, an unwise son or a foolish son would make him 
unsad <laughs> or make them unglad. <laughs> unglad, yeah. Uh, pretty close, but he changes the words a little bit. But a foolish son is a grief to his mother. So sons have an impact on parents, you might say. A wise son is going to make, and it's not exclusive. Uh, this is poetry. And we'll talk a little bit more about the flexibility in poetry. Uh, it's not that a wise son only has an impact on the father and a foolish son only has an impact on his mother. That's not the point. That's, that's not good exegesis when you deal with uh, poetry. You might say, well, that's what the text says. Well, yes, but we're dealing with poetic literature, and this is antithetical, same idea. You might even say a wise son makes the parents glad, and a foolish son makes the parent brings grief to the parents. But it, both are included here together, in, including the idea of parenting, you might say. Uh, so that's what we mean by taking these particular features or characteristics of these different literature and interpreting according to these conventions, you might say, or these characteristics. Does that make sense? So if you exegeted this like you would the book of Ephesians, you might come to some unbiblical conclusions here or conclusions that the author did not intend. Psalm 2, ill got, here's a different one, it's, this is not parallel to 1, but uh, Psalm 10.2, or Proverbs 10.2 rather, ill-gotten gains do not profit, and you can probably guess what the second line has to do with, right? Gains probably of some sort, or gaining something, or not gaining something. Ill-gotten gains, line one, gain, ill-gotten gains do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. So the emphasis is on what is produced by unrighteousness as opposed to righteousness. But the point being that's antithetical parallelism. Those by far are the most common Lots of Proverbs are antithetical. Lots of Psalms are synonymous. But you can find some synonymous parallelism in the Proverbs and also some antithetical parallelism in the Psalms. But you can also find them in the poetic work or the prophetic works that are poetic, that use poetry, or virtually anywhere Song of Solomon, you see similar, synonymous, sometimes antithetical as well. A third kind that is relatively common, but not nearly as common as synonymous and antithetical, is called what's synthetic. In fact, some even categorize it as a a form of synonymous, and what synthetic parallelism is the second line takes up and develops further a thought that is started in the first line. So you have a similar idea, but it takes it one step further. Uh, 
You could even call it uh, stair-step parallelism. Sometimes it'll complete or fill out the idea that you have in the first line. An example would be Psalm 95.3, or line 1. For the Lord is a great God. And then line 2. And a great king above all gods. You see the step? Takes it, takes it further. And in this case, it's the first line is more broad. The Lord is a great God. And the second line takes it another step to be more specific. A great, great king. And not just great, but above all gods. See the stair step there? Also synthetic, Proverbs 4.23. And you're familiar with this one, but you may not have looked at it from the perspective of this stair step. Line one, watch over your heart with all diligence. Line two, for from it flow the springs of life. So if you want to have a good life, you're watching over it with all diligence because good life comes out of a good heart. Kind of a step forward there. Psalm 2.6 is another example of synthetic. Yet I have set my king upon Zion. That's line one. And then it's not very long, but you have line two, my holy hill, kind of describing Zion. It almost assumes the first part of the parallelism there. You see that? Synthetic. There are other types, other kinds of parallelism. I forgot I had this slide, and there's the... Verses that we looked at. Okay, others. There's what's called uh, emblematic. And what we mean by emblematic, or sometimes described as figurative. One line conveys the whole point. And then the second line gives an illustration. Or same idea, more illustrative. Or more of a figure, you might say. It gives an image. The second line will give an an image. Or sometimes it's reversed. An example would be Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for the water brook. That's the emblem, by the way. It's put first. So it's emblematic. So my soul pants for thee, O God. So you have an illustration of my thirst for God, and an image is used to convey that same idea of thirsting for God. Proverbs 11.22, this is a more humorous one. As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, that's the image. You got that in your... Mind there, you have a swine or a pig, and it's got a gold ring in its nose. 
And then the second line, so is a beautiful woman who lacks discretion. You see the emblematic element there? And in this case, you have the emblem first, and then you have the the uh, more abstract idea secondly. You could say Psalm 23 is also an example. Psalm 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. There's the emblem, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. So you have this emblem of a shepherd and sheep and the ideas of meeting needs. That's emblematic. You also have climactic. Psalm 29, 1 and 2 is an example. Climactic is... The second line repeats the first with the exception of the last term or phrase. In Psalm 29, 1 and 2, Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. See, the last phrase is interchanged there, but it's the same. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Same idea, climactic, but it moves it. Kind of, it's, it's a little bit like the stair step, but more climactic. Well, um, let's go ahead and finish off here. I can do it in a couple, uh, five or six minutes here, and then we'll take a break. I'm a little long for our break. So, uh, I can't overstress the importance of parallelism and the difference between Hebrew poetry and most other poetry. Secondly, another characteristic of all poetry, including Hebrew, is this idea of metaphorical language. So, you need to apply the metaphorical principle, especially when you come to poetic literature. Because you have these images, as we just saw. You have a lot of non-literal language, a lot of imagery. So you need to keep in mind that when you come to poetry, you're going to find a more prominence of non-literal language. But you still, remember, that's one of the grammatical, historical, contextual principles. You interpret these images, these figures of speech according to their, um, what's the word, according to their conventions. Okay? So that's a huge element of poetry that you need to take into account. I've already hinted at and mentioned this idea of true to life. In other words, real situations, non-fanciful. You might even say historic. These things actually were experienced by real people, and they're writing down their experiences. Not epic poetry, like you find in Greek poetry, not mythological, but true to life. And I've already mentioned rhyme is minor if it exists at all. In fact, scholars debate whether it even exists at all. But there might be some, for example, you might look up 
Genesis 2.23, you have a little poetic couplet in there. And in the Hebrew text, you have Ish and you have Isha. Two words, one relating to the man, one relating to the woman. So you might have a little bit of rhyme there, but it's not that common. And you might find what's called assonance, which is rhyming. Uh, but even that is not common either. Meter. Um, Walkie says, we know the Israelite poets were, were conscious of rhyme and rhythm, but to date, scholars have failed to analyze satisfactory the metric patterns of Hebrew poetry. So, um, it's not a major feature, so I wouldn't be too concerned about it. One thing that you do find is a very particular kind of Hebrew poetry that, again, this is not common, but it does occur in some of the Psalms, Lamentations as well, uh, Proverbs 31, what are called acrostic Psalms or an acrostic, where the first letter of each verse is in alphabetical order, and that word starts in other words, the first word of the psalm will start with alpha, second uh, verse or third or whatever will start with the following letters in the Hebrew alphabet all the way to 22. So when you look at Lamentations, you'll notice that uh, some of those chapters are 22 verses long. Each of those would start with a Hebrew letter in 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 order. I think uh, the middle psalm, is it 44 or 66? So that means there you have either two or three acrostics within it. Psalm 19 is probably the best known, where you have entire paragraphs, every eighth verse. In fact, in the King James Version, you can learn the Hebrew alphabet because each of the paragraphs has a little Hebrew character ab- above it indicating that that paragraph begins with that Hebrew letter. Well, let's go ahead and take a break. I kind of went a little bit longer than I intended, but uh, I hope it was understandable. When we come back, we can, if you have some questions, we'll answer them at the beginning, and then we'll look at the next area of special hermeneutics which might as well flash it up here, which is wisdom literature. So take about five, six, seven minutes, and we'll come back and take a look at wisdom literature. Well, last hour we went through a lot of material. Uh, Any questions? Anything not clear before we get into wisdom literature? Everybody fine with it? So far, yeah. Great. 
I have one question. Where does the chiasm fall? What is that a special type? Is that poetry or? Uh, you can find it in poetry, but it, you can find it in virtually any kind of literature. That's why we discuss, I did kind of touch on it. I didn't go into much detail when we talked about those literary devices. Remember that? Yeah. One of the last, one of the last things we did. So you can find it in a variety of places. Okay, but it doesn't fit in any of the special topics that we're talking about here. You might find them in all. You, you can find it in narrative. You can find it in poetry. You can find it, I'm not sure about wisdom literature. I can't think of an example. Okay. All right. Thanks. The prophets do it. Yeah. Or use it. I shouldn't say do it. Well, let's take a look at wisdom literature. And what I mean by wisdom literature, wisdom literature is a subset a poetic, so it has all of the same characteristics that we just looked at. Wisdom literature, and in fact, I gave you some examples out of wisdom literature. In fact, Psalms are considered wisdom literature. I didn't give you any examples out of the prophets. But wisdom literature is a particular subset of Hebrew poetry. In fact, we would describe it as Hebrew wisdom literature. And it has its unique features as well in terms of, of scripture. Scripture is unique. In terms of wisdom literature, just as poetic Hebrew, Hebrew literature is unique in terms of poetic literature, so also is wisdom literature. Now let me give you a little background on wisdom literature and where we get some of these ideas. In the Hebrew, the word wisdom is hakmah, and you find the word in several places. In fact, if you do a word study on it, you're going to find that it has an interesting background in terms of the way the word can be used, but I'd like to look at Exodus 31, and point out where the word occurs. In Exodus, Exodus 31, beginning in verse 6, this is in the context of God giving instructions to Moses for the building of the tabernacle. And uh, in that, well, let me look at verse the start of verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezael, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the spirit of God in hakmah, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship. To make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for, for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. So we're talking about all kinds of different crafts required for the building of the temple. And then notice in verse 6, and behold, I myself, 
have appointed with him Aholiab and the son, the son of, uh, I don't even want to pronounce that name. Skip down to the bottom, or towards the bottom there. And in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put Hakma, the word skill there. It's translated skill in the New American Standard. So, the everyday sense, remember we talked about most theological words, if not all, in fact I, I contend that all theological terms and words have an everyday kind of a more material, more earthly sense. This is the everyday sense of the word hakma that more commonly occurs in the scriptures as wisdom. So it has the basic idea or the everyday idea of skill. So in the hearts of all who are skillful, I have put, God has put hakma, put skill, that they may make all that I have commanded you. And if you keep reading, and the, the tent of meeting, and the ark of testimony, and the mercy seat upon it, and all the furniture of the tent. So, all that is involved, so there's carpentry involved, there's weaving, uh, there's construction, uh, woodworking of all kinds, uh, not just fine carpentry, metalworking, all of that is classified as hakma, as skill. Goes on, verse 8, the table also and its utensils and the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils, the labor and its stand, the woven garments, there's tapestry, woven garments as well and the holy garments, uh, clothing as well, holy garments for Aaron the priest and garments of his son with which to carry on the priesthood. The anointing oil also, that's included. So dealing with chemistry, you might even say, or products. And the fragrant incense for the holy place, they are to make them according to all I have commanded you. And in that, you have a variety. Verse 16, if you read on, talks about the skill of weavers. Um, so all kinds of skills, construction, metalwork, woodworking, etc. That's the basic idea of hakma, the skill. Now, we take that word in its normal everyday sense, and in most contexts in the Bible when it refers to hakma, it's talking about that special skill or that special ability in terms of applying principles or living out God's principles. It takes a skill. It takes an ability. Something that is developed, you might even say. So in its normal sense, it's the ability to excel in a particular activity. And in terms of the spiritual aspect, it's a particular skill in living life. And it's not theoretical knowledge. But it's knowledge as a result of development, as a result of experience. Experience in following God's ways, God's principles, God's, God's word. So, hakma is a key word in Hebrew literature. Special skill 
and a special skill in living. Another word that is very common in wisdom literature is mashal, the Hebrew word mashal. Now, it has a broad range of meaning. Sometimes and most commonly it refers to a proverb. Now, that's more specific and it can be translated that way. But it can also be used in a context where it just simply refers to a likeness, something like something else in a context of comparison or similarity. Mashal. It can also be used of a prophetic oracle, like in Numbers 23, verse 7 and 28. The word mashal is used there, and I think it's translated oracle in those two verses, at least New American Standard. It can be a taunt, like in Isaiah 14.4. It can refer to a parable. In fact, we'll talk about this some more when we talk about parables. In the Old Testament, a parable is the word mashal. This is the word. So you could say proverb and even parable. And something that is even close to an allegory. I wouldn't call it an allegory, but something where imagery is used and um, an example that is in, in terms of something conveying like an analogy or like a parable. So that's mashal, very common in Hebrew literature. So this is Hebrew wisdom literature. And it occurs, obviously, in particularly the Old Testament. And there are two kinds or two areas that we would describe as as Hebrew wisdom. The more proverbial, that would be the primary example, is Proverbs. But there is also a distinction between this proverbial idea or Proverbs in their more strict or literal sense or technical sense. There are some books that are more reflective that would still be classified as wisdom. Now, all of these obviously are poetic because poetic literature is the broader category. The more specific is wisdom literature. Job would be classified as both poetic and also wisdom. And it's more reflective. It it deals more, not with individual proverbs, but more extended discussion in terms of more, almost a story. It's more reflective. Similarly, Ecclesiastes would be more reflective. So those are your three major books where you find um, wisdom literature. And you can find other Proverbs in other places in the Old Testament, even in the book of Genesis, Genesis 10.9. I believe there's a perhaps a proverbial statement there for Samuel 10.12. would be another place outside of these uh, more obvious books. You might try 1 Kings 20 verse 11 as well. Now, there's other ancient wisdom literature. There were wise men in Edom that are spoken of in Jeremiah. There were wise men in Egypt as well. 
Some of them are described in the Kings, even Isaiah, where Egyptian wisdom literature is at least alluded to. Babylon had its wisdom literature, but um, not exactly the same as Hebrew wisdom literature. First Kings 4 describes Solomon as the wisest of all men. First Kings 4, 30 and 31. In the New Testament, not so common, sometimes quotations of, of the Proverbs or proverbial passages. You can uh, look up Matthew 11:30 as an example. James 3, 6. Another example. So, not real common, but common enough that we should give attention to it and keep in mind some of its characteristics. I didn't mention Galatians 6, 7. You can include it as far as the New Testament as well. So, what are some of the characteristics that are unique to Hebrew poetry And you need to take into account these characteristics as you are exegeting, say, a particular proverb or uh, maybe portions of Ecclesiastes or the book of Job or others that are isolated in the Old Testament. So we have characteristics. Number one. This is practical advice. Now, this is very, very important. You still have parallelism. Oftentimes, you still have one line leading into another line, etc. But there's also a distinction between Hebrew poetry using all those other characteristics. And that is that it's practical advice. It's not like Greek wisdom, which can be theoretical, can be speculative, but it's always very, very practical. In Israel, the wise man was the knowledgeable man, able to teach others. In fact, he's almost like a scientist. He's almost the scientist. He's the the man that can evaluate his environment. He has the ability to make good decisions in light of the circumstances he finds himself. So, he's able to view life and look ahead and see results of certain decisions, and he knows how to make the decisions that will lead to success or godliness or pleasing to God. So, it's very practical. So, that means that wisdom literature gives the... Jewish person, the the framework to be very creative in the environment in which he lives in, in subduing the earth. So he knows how to use knowledge, he he knows how to use technology, he knows how to analyze scientifically the, the, the things that he needs to make the right decisions. So it's a skill, and it's very closely aligned with those practical everyday skills like carpentry, weaving, etc. So, very practical. Very important to keep that in mind. The next one is just as important. In fact, 
you can misinterpret some passages if you overlook this, and I'll illustrate it as we describe it. Wisdom literature, Hebrew wisdom literature, give general truths. These are observations on life. They're general in that uh, they're not universals, they're not absolutes. Make sure you get that. They're not absolutes. Uh, you can't, cl- in other words, you can't claim them as promises. In other words, just because you have a proverb that tells you a certain action should result in a certain result. These are observations. In other words, this is what you expect in general. But you will not always necessarily have that outcome. The main example that I like to use there, there, there's not, in other words, these are not guarantees, they're not promises, they're general truths. The example that I like to use, what is it, Proverbs 22.6? Let me look it up real quick here, just to be sure we get the right one. Yeah, this is the one. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, a lot of people will claim that as a promise. And they will attempt to be diligent in implementing their child training and try to implement all the principles of a godly home and do all the right things. But there's no guarantee that the children will, in fact, like it says, he will not depart from it. That's a general truth. In general, if you do good parenting, you can, in general, expect that uh, you'll see the product in your children. But I know godly people that have done all the right things, gone to all the seminars, done all the discipline, and... Uh, the result, at least short term and sometimes even long term, have not been according to what it says here. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it because they have, in fact, departed from the faith. Some of them have come back and some of them, I know of one situation, uh, in fact, an elder in a church, well-grounded, well, uh, very biblical, one, uh, an individual, godly family, godly marriage. Three children, raised them all under discipline, Bible teaching, going to a Bible church. And one of the sons basically went astray, got into trouble with the law, spent time in prison, got into drugs. Uh, today, I don't even see that he is capable of recovering because he's so messed up his mind through the drugs that I'm not sure that he has even the capability of recovering spiritually from from that. Um, I don't think anyone could criticize them for their child rearing. Well, did God break his promise? Well, these are not promises. These are general truths. So keep that in mind. Now, some of these, not this one, not the Proverbs 22, but there are some that are not only general truths, but you can also find the same 
principle and sometimes the same advice uh, in, let's say, an uh, epistolary literature or in a teaching context. In those cases, then if it's taught outside of wisdom literature, then it not only confirms that general truth, but it can be claimed as a promise as well. But in general, wisdom literature, you need to look at these like more statistically, if you will. I can use more of a mathematic analogy here. In other words, statistically, if in fact you do these things statistically, if you train up a child in the way that he should go, the statistics are in your favor that that child, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Does that make sense? So, Proverbs are a little bit different from absolutes and commands. Here's an example of two Proverbs that come right together that almost give you the opposite scenario. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. It says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Okay, I don't mess with fools. <laughs> Uh-oh, you got to read verse 5. Answer a fool as his folly deserves, that he not be wise in his own eyes. Well, you almost have a contradiction there, but it's not a contradiction because it's a proverb. And there are some situations where it would be a good thing to answer a fool and it's helpful to the fool. In other words, he not be wise in his own eyes. He may take your counsel, even though he's a fool, and fools in general don't do that. There might be a set of circumstances where your answer might be helpful. But in other circumstances, uh, don't answer a fool. You spend too much time arguing with a fool, and he might convince you, and you'll become like him. So almost too opposite approaches there in back-to-back proverbs because these are general truths. They're not absolutes. In other words, you don't absolutely never answer a fool because you will always be like him. That's not It's not an absolute like that because the next line says that you are to answer the fool, but you don't always answer him. You have to evaluate the situation. That's where hakmah comes in. That's where wisdom needs to be applied to evaluate which situation calls for which response. That's the nature of Proverbs. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. Well, do you know any old people that are unbelievers and even atheists? Well, I know a couple that are very, very old. Well, does that mean that this proverb is wrong or something go wrong here? No, it's a general truth. Statistically, if you fear the Lord, you're not going to fall into the traps that might shorten your life. It's going to prolong your life. If you're a wicked person, you get into all kinds of situations, alcoholism, etc., that's going to shorten your life. So statistically, Proverbs 10.27 is a general truth. But some godly people die young. 
So it's not a problem with the proverb, it's a problem with how do you interpret the proverb, and you interpret it as a general truth. In, in some proverbs, be uh, considered a promise, like say Proverbs, Proverbs three, five, and six. What's that? Can some be considered like a yeah. promise, like Proverbs three, five, and six? Yeah, I, I go ahead and quote them. Yeah, trust in the Lord with all your heart, do not lean on your own, own understanding, yeah. and all your ways acknowledge Him. Yeah, because you see that consistent principle, that consistent idea elsewhere outside of the Proverbs. Right. So based on all of those other passages outside of Proverbs, that one would, in fact, also be an absolute. Right. But then just two verses later, do not be wise in your own eyes, and it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Well, that doesn't mean you're going to get healed just because you're exactly. not eyes. Yep. So keep that in mind in interpreting the Proverbs. Also unique to Hebrew wisdom literature, because it's biblical and because God has given it ultimately, there's always a moral or a spiritual aspect. They're not just practical advice, but they have spiritual elements to them as well. And they all encourage the ultimate wisdom is the fear of the Lord, obviously. And that's the beginning of wisdom. So they all encourage and even begin with a proper relationship with God. So wisdom is that special spiritual knowledge of right living in the highest sense that you can imagine it because it's in terms of a relationship with God. And like I said, uh, that moral aspect in Proverbs 1-7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And that theme is repeated, not only in Proverbs, but elsewhere. But you also have Proverbs 9-10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy, Holy One, is understanding. So it has that element of a relationship with God. Proverbs 14:16 A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil. And a lot of the proverbs deal with avoiding foolish things and sinful things and outright unrighteous things and evil things. So a wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. Outside of Proverbs, you have Job 28, 28. And to man he said, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. That's the bottom line. And to depart from evil is understanding. That's the moral aspect. Similarly, Psalm 111, 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. There's the moral aspect, the living as- aspect. And then it ends, his praise endures forever. So there were three main leaders in Israel. The priest, 
who helped the people maintain that relationship with God through the sacrificial system. The prophet that exhorted and encouraged the people and the nation to live within the Mosaic Covenant. And the third main leader was the wise man. Interestingly, not so much the kings, although they were leaders as well. But at the heart of Israel was the priest, the prophet, and the wise man. Certainly he had a political leader, but Israel was more dependent on the sacrificial system and the guidance and motivation of the prophets and the wisdom of the wise men. So, the moral aspect. Now, looking at not only the wisdom literature, but more broadly the poetic writings, but particularly the wisdom contained in them, you have the basis for for culture. So they are important to the nation. So we have a historical record of the nation in their relationship to God and their ultimate departure from him. But much value can be gained in terms of just the basics of culture that the wisdom literature and the poetic literature address. And just some examples of this, and I'm trying to remember where did I get this from. I'll have to look that up. But, for example, the book of Job, a very important aspect of living in a culture. All of us suffer. All of us experience that. How do you deal with it? And I think Job deals with that whole broad area of suffering. And obviously, it uh, moves us to trust God and we have an example of what that looks like in extreme suffering. So Job adds to that area of culture in dealing with all of the hardships that we experience. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes is more philosophical, more reflective in terms of dealing with the broad ideas of life and the value of all things and all things in and of themselves end in vanity. In other words, the wisdom there in terms of anything in the culture, it's, it's not, you know, our culture focuses, especially men focus on their occupation, their careers. Ecclesiastes wants you, Ecclesiastes wants you to look beyond that. Look to uh, to God, and everything else is vanity. So philosophical re- reflection on many areas of life. Obviously, in culture, marriage and even the sexual area is very, very important. That's where families come from. So the Song of Solomon gives us some insight into what marriage is like, what it can be. And that whole relationship between husbands and wives. Psalms at the heart of culture should be worship. And this is the worship manual for all of Israel. And the worship manual of all the Old Testament. And useful for 
us in the New Testament as well, the New Testament era. Proverbs, social life in general, work particularly, all the aspects, deals a lot with money, deals a lot with relationships, deals a lot even with uh, the, I don't want to say the environment in a more environmental sense, but uh, the situation that we live in, not just environmental, but just the circumstances of our social life. All those aspects, Proverbs gives lots of wisdom and guidance. So you could say that these books are the basis of culture. Interestingly, listed with the the five poetic books, one that is not poetic, but also contains some wisdom that you can draw from it, is the book of Daniel. Remember we have the, the song, or the... Uh, uh, the law and the prophets when when Jesus or the New Testament categorizes the Bible the law and the prophets or particularly the Old Testament is talking about the Pentateuch and the rest of the Bible and we'll talk about prophecy next but there's a third category remember there's the the law, the prophets, and do you remember the other category? The writings. The poetic book are, books are in the writings, and one of the books that is also there is, is the book of Daniel. And we can gain national strategies and how to deal with, with international affairs. So it's a basis for the culture of Israel, these poetic books. So very, very important. And when Israel exercised wisdom, uh, they were successful. Any questions on that? While well, I'm, I'm going to switch PowerPoint slides here. Everybody okay? Okay. No questions? No questions. Okay, well, good. I guess it was clear, huh? Okay, and the rest of the time that we have, we won't complete it. But we'll look at another area of hermeneutics. We've dealt with the narrative material of the Bible. We've looked at poetic material. We've completed the poetic material, looking at wisdom literature, a subset, but an entirely different genre, you might even say, or different literary form is prophetic material. And we'll see how much we can get done today, and wherever we finish, we'll pick up next time. So, when we deal with prophetic material, prophecy, in its true sense, is unique to Scripture. There is what is called false prophecy, and there were prophets and seers and... um, 
writers of prophetic material in other cultures. There were Babylonians, and we saw the Canaanites. But biblical prophecy is is very unique, and it has its own characteristics that we want to take a closer look at and consider it another literary genre. So let's start by looking at the importance of prophetic literature. And it's important for at least the fact that there's an abundance of it. Not as frequent as narrative in scripture, not as frequent as poetic, but still... In fact, the estimates that have been made is one-fourth of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. Now, much of that has been fulfilled, a lot of fulfillment in the first century in the life of Christ and in Christ. But when those prophecies were written, Obviously, they were prophetic. The, those Old Testament passages were prophetic. So if you add them all up, you have about a quarter of the Bible was prophetic when it was written. One writer, I don't remember which one, actually comes up with 26.83% of the Bible. He came up with 8,352 verses of 31,124. And if you obviously figure that out, that gives you a number of 26.83% of the Bible. Just a little bit over a quarter of the Bible. In the Old Testament, using, I guess this is J. Barton Payne. I get these numbers out of uh, Kaiser and Silva, I believe. He counts the Old Testament verses, 6,641 out of 23,210 for 28.61%. And corresponding to that, the New Testament, 21.63%. So New Testament, just under a quarter. Old Testament, a few percentage points over a quarter of the Bible. So just the amount of material that we have to deal with that is prophetic uh, makes makes it important. Now the reason poetic material is more frequent than uh, the prophetic material is because many of the prophets use poetry to convey their prophetic message. So many of the Prophetic books are also poetic, but they also have the prophetic element as well. There are more individual books that come under this category of prophecy than any other book. We have major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. We have 12 minor prophets. So right there, there's... 16 books of the 39 Old Testament books. In the New Testament, 23 of the 27 New Testament books contain prophecy. There's only one that is classified as prophetic in itself, but 23 of the 27 
contain prophecy. The prophet and the term for prophet occurs over 300 times in the Old Testament. And it occurs over a hundred times in the New Testament. New Testament term, uh, nabi. New Testament term, prophetes. So even the word itself is very, very common. And I'll try to give you kind of a biblical perspective on it after we get through the importance here. Uh, what do we mean by prophetic material? But let me just stress the importance first. We could also say that it's important because God is the only source of true prophetic material. And that's because only God can uh, reveal the future. He's outside of time. He's eternal. And in fact, the future is Simply his plan. So when he tells us what the future is, he is telling us what he intends to accomplish. So that makes biblical prophecy unique in that God is the author and source of true prophecy, which is obviously biblical prophecy. So he gives revelation, and we only gain prophecy from understanding what God has revealed. So prophets don't speak for themselves. In fact, that's one of the characteristics of a prophet. They don't invent a message. They uh, convey what has been revealed to them. They simply announce what God has revealed. And also God is the one, he's the source, and that he's the one that raises prophets. They don't volunteer necessarily, I guess the false ones do, but the true prophets, God raises them. And God used them throughout the Old Testament. They're not social reformers, that's a liberal view of prophets, They're not innovators. They're not religious thinkers. They are people that submitted to God and were given a message, and God reveals to them what he wants communicated to his people. So nothing that the prophet produces is original. It is all by revelation. And that's true of all of the prophets. Thirdly, they're important is because they give us a perspective on history. They give us a divine history, a divine interpretation. And that starts all the way in the book of Genesis because we have prophetic material there. Some, some of that has been, in fact, most of that has been fulfilled. And a lot of it was even fulfilled within the time frame of the book of Genesis itself. But it does give us a divine interpretation of history. And for that reason, it is very important because it gives us a perspective on true history. Deals with ultimate destinies. Those have not been worked out, so they're still prophetic from our time frame and from our perspective in the church age. So there's much of 
prophetic material that has not been fulfilled that is yet future even from now. Because it gives us details concerning how God is going to complete history. We would call that the consummation of all of history. And true history is God orchestrating the events that he intends to accomplish. The issues of sin have not been completely resolved. And even beginning in Genesis 3.15, we have a prophetic statement that looks all the way down to the end of world history, the last event of world history that is predicted in Revelation chapter 20 is the great white throne judgment where God will, in a final and ultimate way, resolve the issue of evil. The destiny of men, the destiny of angels, and all of the classes of men, they all have a future. And it's prophecy that gives us insight into what that is. Fifthly, it is very important theologically in that it divides theology. There are three main approaches of prophecy in the future sense in terms of future from the church age. And each of those three approaches are different, so we need to kind of consider, if you're looking at prophetic material, you have to give some attention to these three approaches. And we've been stressing in this course that the basic difference between the approach that we're going to take and the approach of the other two, which would be amillennialism and uh, postmillennialism, those other two approaches have to take a non-literal approach to maintain their post-millennial and amillennial uh, perspective or theology. So it's only the pre-millennial view that comes directly out of a literal or grammatical historical contextual approach to scripture. Not that the amillennialist is, does not use that approach, but the amillennialist is inconsistent in his approach and inconsistent particularly when it deals with prophecy or eschatology. So the divider of theology is the perspective that we will take in terms of the grammatical, historical, contextual approach. Well, I've already hinted at the fact that we have prophetic material that has already been fulfilled. So let me give you a brief survey of uh, prophetic material, and we can describe that as the history of the development of prophetic statements. So let's take a look at the Bible and go all the way back to the beginning and see something of the history of these statements where they occur. In fact, let me ask you the first question here. What is the first prophetic statement? I may have thrown this out before. I don't know. But maybe you remember. Maybe I didn't say it. I don't remember. What is the first prophetic statement in all of the Bible? 
Genesis 3.15? That's close, but there's even one before it. A man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Um, that's more of a command. That's more of a command. And there's one even before that. You could read chapter 2 and you get to verse 17. Do you remember verse 17? God makes all of the trees of the garden available to the man and the woman to, to eat and eat abundantly, freely. But, verse 17, what? From the tree that is in the midst of the garden you shall not eat. That's the command portion. For in the day that you eat of it, that looks ahead, you shall surely die. Infinitive absolute. You could even translate that you shall die dead. Looking at certainty, but it's future. It's a prediction. And when we get to chapter 3, we see that that is fulfilled. But that's the first prophetic statement in all of the Bible. Let me ask you another question. Who is the first prophet of the Bible? Well, God, obviously, but besides God, first, outside of God predicting, he's the ultimate prophet. Any suggestions? How about Enoch? That's close. That's very close, and that's good. That We know that from Jude 14 and 15. He's identified by Jude. In fact, we have a prophecy that's attributed to Enoch that we don't see in Genesis. So under inspiration, the writer of Jude has a prophecy that finds its source in Enoch, but there's one before Enoch. Jesus identifies him. When he's talking about John the Baptist, remember, he identifies in Luke 11, 50, 51. Go ahead. Abel. Abel, yeah. Yeah. So Abel would be identified as the first prophet. So the first prophetic statement goes all the way back to before the fall, Genesis 2, 17. First prophet that Jesus identifies is within the first family, Abel. And then... Later descendants, Enoch, is also identified by the writer of Jude. So you generally don't think of them, but there's these little notes in Scripture that identifies them as prophets. So prophecy goes all the way back to before the fall, prophetic literature. And again, most of it has been, has been fulfilled. There's a lot of prophetic material dealing with the founding of the nation of Israel. Moses is called a prophet, and he reveals, he writes the first five books, so he writes Genesis. And in Genesis, we have the Abrahamic covenant, but before it's a covenant, we have the promises. So Genesis chapter 12 is 
one of the most significant prophetic statements in all the Old Testament. In fact, the covenant has not been totally fulfilled even in our day. It still has a future fulfillment. So we have a long history of prophetic statements, some already fulfilled and some even early ones that are yet to be fulfilled. In fact, the Genesis 3.15 passage won't be fulfilled till the great white throne judgment when evil will be completely dealt with. So when we speak of prophecy, we're speaking of not only a large amount of material, but very comprehensive, uh, very extensive in um, in where we can find it in all of the Bible. So lots of statements in the book of Genesis that predict a founding of a nation or the beginning of a nation. And even in the Pentateuch, there are other promises, even the book of Deuteronomy, lots of promises concerning the nation of Israel, another covenant in Exodus, the Mosaic covenant that has predictions concerning Israel as well. Remember, they're not a nation when they receive the law. So it anticipates and even predicts Israel's founding. We have lots of prophecy during the kingdom age. Samuel, in First Samuel, or the book of Samuel, 19 through 21, very significant prophetic statement there, uh, 3, 19 through 21. Nathan is a prophet that exercises his ministry in the administration of David. So during the kingdom age, we have prophets, the rise of prophets, more specific prophets. We already had Moses. And by the way, even Moses predicts that there will come a prophet like him. Now, there might be a partial reference to Joshua, but I think ultimately... Jesus Christ is the one that is in view there. So, lots of prophecy, lots of prophets. In the later kingdom age, we have mention of other prophets. We have Gad, we have Ahijah. And most of the prophets we find during the decline of the kingdom. We have Elijah, Elisha, the the writing prophets, both major and minor, and there's others that are mentioned as well. Shemaiah in the southern kingdom, Azariah also in the southern kingdom, Jehu, another prophet, Hananiah, or Hanani, Hanani, Micaiah is another one. Obed, another one. Huldah, interestingly, Second Kings. So, lots of prophets during that period of time because the nation needed to be called to repentance. One of the main functions, we'll talk about the functions of the prophet in a moment. So, this is just the history so far. There are prophets during and after the exile the major ones, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, partially during the exile and just immediately before. 
And then we have a cessation of prophets, a period of silence after the fall of the nation. And it's not till we get to the New Testament that we have another raising up of another prophet, John the Baptist. Abbreviate him for space there. Jesus is considered a prophet. The apostles are considered prophets. They're referred to as prophets. So a long history. So there's prophetic material in the New Testament time. And again, in the New Testament, we have fulfillment of a lot of passages from the Old Testament and primarily fulfillment in the life of Christ. So that gives you kind of a thumbnail sketch of prophetic writers and prophetic writing starting all the way before the fall of mankind. And then obviously the last book of the book of Revelation that closes the canon is the prophetic book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation. And it is primarily prophetic in terms of the church age, future prophecy. So that's a thumbnail, brief history of prophecy. And we've already mentioned, in some measure, the occurrence where you find prophetic material. You can look at prophetic material in a broad sense, in a more narrow sense. You have the preaching prophets. These preaching prophets, some of them I've mentioned during the Kingdom age and during the period of the decline, these spoke to their contemporaries. They spoke during the time of the kingdom age. They called the nation to repentance. They called kings to repentance. They called the people to repentance because the nation was declining. And I mentioned some of those already. I won't repeat them. But the ones that are also, not often thought of as prophets are the what are called historical prophets. Now, this is a broader sense. Some of them are referred to as prophets, and you think, well, they write history. They write they're they're, they're not prophetic in the sense that they don't predict anything. They write history. Those are the historical prophets. This is prophecy in its broadest sense. And in a sense, you could think of prophets as those that have received revelation from God. And I'm going to expand upon this later. So any of the writers of scripture could be considered prophets in this broadest sense. Some of them don't write predictive material, but they are prophets in that they receive revelation that can only be received from God himself, and some of them write. So you could consider Joshua a historical prophet, and the book of Joshua, you could consider the book of Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, those would be historical prophets. And then the ones that are more familiar are the writing prophets, those major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. 
and there's four major prophets, and then the twelve minor prophets, and then we have the one New Testament prophecy or uh, book of prophecy, the book of Revelation. So that's where you find prophetic material. In its broadest and in its more specific sense. What is the function of the prophet and therefore what is the function of prophecy? And we can derive this from different biblical texts, primarily in the Old Testament. Uh, we won't have time to look up all of those passages, but let me again just give you kind of a quick overview of the major function of prophets. And again, we'll look at it in its broader sense and also in its more specific sense. The main function of a prophet was to proclaim God's word. That's in its broadest sense, and that can apply to any portion of scripture. And it also includes those preaching prophets that proclaim God's word to that community that existed in the time of the prophet. The ones that we've mentioned, for example, during the period of the kingdom or the decline of the kingdom, they proclaim God's word audibly to the audience that they spoke. They were preachers. Isaiah 21.20 What I have heard, this is what the prophet says, What I, the last part of the verse, What I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. Now that has a specific application there, but there's a broader application that applies to any prophet in, in any time frame at any time in Bible or world history. So they're proclaimers of God's word. That's their primary task, to speak whatever God has given to them. And some of their preaching or teaching show how God is working in history, and they call people to an awareness of what God is doing. A more specific function of a prophet is they were the ones that anointed and they also judged kings. So in God's economy, God put judges uh, or prophets above kings. They were the judges of the kings. And we see the examples of, for example, Samuel uh, anointed Saul. He anointed David. And uh, who was the prophet that anointed uh, Solomon? Was that Nathan? So they anointed kings and they judged them. And there's examples of uh, others as well that anointed other kings. And they also, like I said, they judged kings. Nathan is the example of bringing condemnation on David for his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her her husband. So their work was very necessary during the decline of the kingdom. And many of them, like Elijah and Elisha, 
confronted the kings of that period of decline. So they judged kings. In the broader sense, again, they were writers of scripture. Both history, both historical books, both Old Testament books and New Testament books, as well as those that we think of more specifically as prophetic books. And what they did in writing scripture, they were the ones that revealed, obviously, that that word that was revealed to them. They took it the next step. The prophets that proclaimed in their time frame, now these writers wrote down the prophecies as God directed. They were the interpreters of history, interpreting what God was doing, showing that God was sovereign over all historical events. They deal with political events. They deal with environmental or climate, climatological events, economic events, foreign affairs. So they wrote scripture. Very important function or area of the prophet is they were enforcers of the covenants. The church today doesn't emphasize covenants probably as much as it should, but I think they are extremely important in the Old Testament. I think uh, Charlie Clough emphasizes them. Those of you that are taking the framework course had a heavy dose of the importance of covenants. But covenants are extremely important in terms of not only world history, not only, well, not only in terms of the nation of Israel, but in terms of world history, in that I think they kind of specify what God is going to do in terms of outcomes, prophetic outcomes. And the prophets, if you read them, you'll see that they constantly refer to the covenants. And probably most often the Mosaic covenant, and they were the enforcers of the Mosaic covenant. It was through the prophets that God reminds the people that they're in violation of the law and also to remind them on the positive end that if they obeyed the law, then they would be blessed. But if they violated the covenant, they would be cursed. So they're enforcers of the covenants. They also, as part of enforcing the covenants, they reiterate God's faithfulness, they show that God is faithful to those covenants. History is actually a record, a divine record of God abiding by those covenants. Remember, a covenant is a legal document. You might view them as a contract. In fact, the word contract is a way that in our culture we ought to look at these covenants. They're contracts. Contracts were very uh, very common throughout Israel's history. This is reflected that even in the time of Noah, because there's a Noahic covenant, there were covenants and people were aware of it. In the time of Abraham, Abraham entered into covenant with uh, other peoples. So they're very, very common. The uniqueness of some covenants is that God enters into covenant with his people. 
But because this is a legal document, God is binding himself to abide by the stipulations of the covenant. History is a record of God fulfilling what he bound himself to. And God is shown to be faithful. And that's a major theme of the prophets, particularly the writing prophets. They emphasize God's faithfulness. Therefore, we are as people, or the nation of Israel, is also to be faithful. And when they're unfaithful, the prophets speak up. And that leads us to the next function of the prophet. They serve as prosecuting attorneys for the nation of Israel. Now, they serve two functions using legal language. You could even say they serve as defense attorneys in relationship to God. They defend the faithfulness, the reliability, the the uh, uh, attributes of God. They defend the nature of God and demonstrate God's faithfulness. But they also prosecute, they're God's prosecuting attorneys in that they lay out the failure of the nation to abide by not only the covenants, but uh, even things outside of the covenants relating to their relationship to God. So you could view them as prosecuting attorneys calling the nation to repent when the nation is in need, pointing out the failure of not only individuals, but of the nation collectively. So they analyze man's behavior based on the covenants, based on what God has revealed, and particularly the Mosaic covenant. In fact, you do see something of legal proceedings within a lot of the prophecies. We won't have time to look at it, but you might look up or jot it down and study the clearest passage is Micah 6, 1 through 4. But there's other passages that have this characteristic of a prosecuting attorney and a legal proceeding in uh, Hosea, in passages in Isaiah, and other passages as well. The Hebrew word of this Court procedure or proceeding is RIV, R-I-B, transliterated. The Hebrew RIV is like a case. In fact, in I think the New American Standard, it translates the word RIV in that Micah passage as God bringing a case. And what he's doing is he, Micah is bringing evidence of violation of the covenant. It's a case that God has against the people. And Micah is calling upon the nation to repent. And within the reeve, you have an exposure or you have the evidence presented. You have witnesses even identified. Witnesses. It's like a courtroom scene. And you have the case presented with an indictment that specifies the violation of the covenant, the violations of the covenant. 
and usually an announcement of a sentence or a judgment where the prophet will invoke the curses of the covenant and uh, oftentimes the curses identified in Deuteronomy 28 and 29. So they act as God's prosecuting attorneys. attorneys. Another function primarily of the later prophets, the prophets and the writing prophets during the period of the decline They pronounce this judgment as prosecuting attorneys, but they also predict that God is faithful to these covenants and he will discipline the nation. They will be taken into captivity. They will be destroyed as a nation, but they will not be annihilated as a people. And they have a great future. And we have some of the greatest messianic prophecies and the messianic kingdom predicted in that period of time and it's to give them hope that yes they have failed and God is going to discipline and judge they're going to lose everything but God will be faithful and the covenants that he made some of them are unconditional you might say and that God will faithfully fulfill them but it will not be fulfilled until a future time So they will predict a future Messiah and a future Messianic kingdom. So these are the prophets. And from that, you can glean something of the characteristics. But next week, our time has run out. We'll look at more specific characteristics of prophetic material. And these are very important in helping us to interpret prophetic material so our time has come to an end Uh, Mark do you want to close for us today yes let's let's pray our gracious heavenly father we thank you and praise you for again who you are you are the sovereign creator of all things we thank you for this opportunity we have to learn how to accurately and faithfully uh, interpret what you have said in your word to us. We thank you for your preservation of the word down through the centuries. Uh, give us wisdom. Help us to remember these things that we have learned and apply them as we uh, seek to get a better understanding of who you are and what you have called us to do uh, in, in our lives. We pray your blessing upon the class as we depart. Wishing everybody and hoping and praying for a, a Blessed time of Thanksgiving, as we thank you for all the many blessings as a nation you have given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And I appreciate you reminding us that uh, we have a Thanksgiving time. We should be thankful every day, but especially at this time. So before we close, any quick questions? Uh, if not, you can bring them next week as well. Uh, we can start. Remind me and we'll start answering the questions or uh, didn't leave too much time for that. But anything quick we can answer before we leave? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. good. Okay. Hi, everyone. Okay, if you think of anything, uh, we'll answer them next, next week. Next week will be our last session. So we are getting close to the end here. 
Have a happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next week, and that'll be the last time. Yeah, thank you. Night.